Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. This week, in order to get ready for something that's coming next month, I had to go back four years. I'll tell you what I think of the crown. Plus, I'm Jeff Braun. Aaron Sorkin has a great new movie on Netflix. I'll review The Trial of the Chicago 7. And I got on a plane twice this week, so to speak. I'll tell you about Global's new limited series, Departure. And it's finally here, season 32 of The Amazing Race. Sasha Baron Cohen is having a big month. His Borat sequel is out now on Amazon Prime Video. We'll talk about that more next week for sure. And last week he co-starred in a new Netflix movie about the trial of the Chicago 7. It's called The Trial of the Chicago 7. <laughs> they tried it peacefully. We're going to try something else. without a job. They're a threat to national security. It's revolution. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Get out of the street! Get out of the street! When you came to Chicago, were you hoping to draw the police into a confrontation? I'm concerned you have to think about it. Give me a moment, would you, friend? I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. Written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, which is really the big draw here. Sorkin won an Oscar for writing The Social Network 10 years ago. Before that, of course, he made a huge mark on the TV landscape by creating The West Wing. And he first came into Hollywood by writing A Few Good Men based on his own play, which, of course, has one of the most memorable courtroom scenes in movie history. Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when it went bad, you cut person. these guys loose! Your Honor, you have markers inside a bony transfer. Your Honor, you doctored the logbook. Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor. Consider yourself in contempt. You. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled to You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! So yeah, Sorkin writes another courtroom drama, I Am In. The Chicago 7 were a group of activists charged with inciting a riot on the streets of Chicago during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. The men represented several different protest groups with similar but not identical agendas, but basically all surrounding the Vietnam War. The 7 included maybe the most famous activist and Abby Hoffman. He's played by Sasha Baron Cohen. He was a wild and crazy guy. His partner, Jerry Rubin, played by your boy, Brett Succession's Jeremy Strong. He's even wilder and crazier than Hoffman. On the other end of the spectrum, there's the very passionate but much more pragmatic Tom Hayden played by Eddie Redmayne, who I used to think of as a boy, but who has grown into a man. Uh, he is a partner in this as well. There are a couple of what are we doing here kind of guys in the seven. Their presence cleverly explained later in the movie. And then there's an older fella played by the great character actor John Carroll Lynch. Just a moment on Lynch because he's one of my favorite that guys before I learned his name. He was Drew Carey's brother on the Drew Carey show. He was Norm son of a Gunderson in Fargo. He may have been the Zodiac killer in Zodiac. That interrogation scene, by the way, among the most chilling things I've ever seen. And he met a disturbing tragic end in an episode of The Handmaid's Tale. Just a few highlights of uh, his terrific career. Those are the seven. There was also an eighth, sort of. The leader of the Black Panther Party, Bobby Seale, played by Watchmen's Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. A year ago, I'd never heard of this actor 
now I feel like I say his name almost every week on our show. So the Nixon government wants to send a message to protesters by trying all these guys as a group. Seal refuses to be part of the group. He gets his own lawyer. He says he had already left Chicago long before the riots broke out. He had nothing to do with it. History has obviously already told all the details of this story. I'm not going to give any other details in case you haven't heard you just don't know about it i didn't know most of it and it's always best i think to go in without knowing first if you can i believe that to be the case for all movies so now the thing about the movie is it's really just about the trial we get a very quick background on some of these guys but the trial starts almost immediately without showing the riots or any of the specific incidents and other things that happened beforehand some of that is peppered in throughout the movie in flashbacks but the story really focuses on the trial itself right up to the end, which is very dramatic and kind of surprising and some of the stuff it actually leaves out. So if you have a trial, you got to have lawyers and a judge. And the casting coup continues on those fronts with Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing the government prosecutor, Mark Rylance as the defendant's lawyer, and Frank Langella as the judge. They're all great, but very different performances. Levitt's a very button-down in his role. He plays it quite subtly. Langella is much broader but, I mean, one of the key points of this movie is that these guys were tried by, um, pr- like, a legitimately crazy judge. He seems largely unfit for the bench, which is frustrating beyond belief for the lawyers, especially Rylance, who is excellent. He's kind of a hippie lawyer, which is a new turn from him, for me, as an audience member. He is, however, saddled with a ridiculous wig that may cost the film a half a cushion for me in the end, Brett. <laughs> All the performances, though, are great. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's Abby Hoffman is getting a lot of praise. I would think I was more impressed with Rylance Langella and surprisingly Eddie Redmayne, of whom I've never really been a big fan. And of course, there's the Sorkin of it all. I mean, after Quentin Tarantino, Aaron Sorkin's probably the writer known most for his crackling dialogue. Courtroom movies lend themselves to a lot of talking and speechifying. This, of course, is no exception. And that's always the nice thing about a Netflix movie is you can, you know, pause to catch your breath or scroll back a bit to rehear something. But Sorkin's the guy you want if you have a large ensemble talking in a group and this movie just rips along because of it. The only real downside, apart from the wigs, is visually it's a little bit dull at times. It's that Netflix thing, I think, where it looks like a Netflix movie and not a movie you would find in theaters. I, I sort of getting afraid that movies will just start looking like this. It just kind of lays there on the screen. Nothing really pops off at you. And they can't blame the budget for that. I've seen plenty of cheaper independent movies where there's just an undefinable electricity and energy radiating from the screen despite a low budget. Woody Allen used to be able to do that with a stationary static shot. So it can be done. But for this movie, it's sort of a minor quibble because the rest of the proceedings are just so engaging. It is on Netflix now, like I said. It's definitely worth your time. And I'm going to give the trial of the Chicago 7 four couch cushions out of five. Brett? And I also see Michael Keaton was in the cast. Yes, he has a brief uh, but uh, important role later on in the movie. Okay. Now, a couple of notes on the various actors you mentioned. I just want to circle back to your comment about Eddie Redmayne, whom you used to think of Mm -hmm. as a boy, but he's grown into a man. What's that about? I don't know. He seemed like he always seemed like he was very young, like he was a, like, 18 or 19 years old and in this he looks like he's 30 years old and, and i don't know how old that guy really is but it just he just seems so much more grown up than i'm used to seeing him i should also point out i think the only thing i've seen him in is jupiter ascending oh which is whoa. a it's a f- not a great movie but it's a fun movie but i didn't see him in uh he won the oscar for 
his portrayal of Stephen Hawking, right? So I never saw that movie, but that's just because I have an aversion to this guy. <laughs> so yeah, I was I was impressed with uh, his performance. Okay, he's thirty seven, by the way. Uh, Nineteen eighty two. Oh my god, is when he was born. Second note: uh, you mentioned John Carroll Lynch. He's one of those that guys. I know him as that yes. guy from the American. Horror Story series. He's done tremendous work oh. in various seasons of that show. Um, so yeah, he's great in whatever he does because he can be. He can. He's one of those actors who can play like the nice because he has a kind face, right? Um, yeah. So when he oh, yeah. plays a bad guy, I think that makes it even scarier because you don't expect it oh. from him. He is just in in Zodiac. Like rewatch Zodiac because he gives Jake Gyllenhaal a look near the end of that movie that is just it's one of the most frightening things i've ever seen in a movie it's amazing and i was and and it's the reason you said because you know i've seen him 500 times in fargo because i watch that movie three times a year (laughs) and he plays you know marge's like a husband who just likes to paint pictures of ducks and try and get those paintings put onto (laughs) stamps like he's the most friendly nice affable guy in the world in that movie and then his the turn in zodiac is i was not prepared for that the first time i saw it and then uh one more note you mentioned yaya abdul mateen the second he also of course was in aquaman he played manta in aquaman he was the bad guy in that or one of the bad guys and he was in an excellent episode of uh, black mirror in the the latest oh, really? series of that, in the the striking vipers episode, so yeah, he has popped up all over the place. So this uh, film, I I feel like I need to watch it just because of the who's who of this cast. It's incredible. So yeah, and I think it's because of you know when they say, oh, Aaron Sorkin wrote a courtroom drama. Do you want to be in it? The actors will just line up for it because they know they're going to get some amazing dialogue that they get to you know spit out at the audience so that's it's easy for when you're a good writer like that you can get a good cast like that i mean that's why you know i mentioned quentin tarantino his movies always have an all-star lineup too because people just love being able to deliver his dialogue now we do need to mention uh, just a quick reminder and as jeff mentioned we will have more to say on this next week because we'll have watched it <laughs> are you going to be able to watch it do you have amazon prime video I do. Yes, I'll, that's I'll right. We, I ask you twice. this every week. Every week. You, <laughs> you have been watching Jack Ryan. Did you finish Jack Ryan? That's right. No, no, no. I've, I've still got a couple episodes to go. Okay. All right. Well, this week on Amazon Prime Video, now available, Borat 2, as it's easier to call it because its full title is Borat Subsequent Movie Film, Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Ten years ago, I released a movie film which brought great shame to Kazakhstan. But now I was instructed to return to Yankee land to carry out secret missions. I go to America! What do you say? No, it's not me. People may recognize my face. I would need disguises. I will take this to be a fat like American man. Yeah, this is a good one. <laughs> now, the first movie, by the way, in case you're wondering, why is that title so long? Well, you might remember that the first movie, which we all know simply as Borat, is actually called uh, <laughs> Borat Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. So that's okay. why the title is extra long. Do you know some of the rejected titles for Borat 2? I found them online. Oh, no, I it didn't. First, 
first they were going to call it Borat 2 Great Success, <laughs> which actually, that would have been a good title. Yeah. And then another one, which I actually I thought I saw it in a promotion. They may have just recently changed it to the ridiculous thing you said, but the other ridiculous title they almost went with was Borat Gift of Pornographic Monkey to Vice Premier <laughs> Mikhail Pence to make benefit recently diminished nation of Kazakhstan. <laughs> oh, that is gold. And of course, everyone's talking this week, a uh, compromising scene for Rudy Giuliani caught in a hotel bedroom scene in this Borat film. Zooks. And uh, not going to get into the specifics of that. You can watch it yourself. But 84% as of <laughs> this recording, Thursday afternoon oh. on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, it's... The summary says, Borat's subsequent movie film proves Sacha Baron Cohen's comedic creation remains a sharp tool for exposing the most misguided or outright repugnant corners of American culture. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I saw a tweet from Seth Rogen. He said he'd watched it six or seven times already and said it was just one of the funniest things he's ever seen. All right. We will have a review of Borat 2 next week. In a moment, I'm going to tell you about a couple of new shows I started watching this week that let me kind of get on a plane. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. Started watching a couple of shows this week, including one that debuted recently on Global. It's called Departure. You're saying... Somebody on board wanted that aircraft to disappear. Why did you leak this? Terrorism is the public's worst fear. You want to start a bloody war? Assad. Pleasure to meet you both. People went to great lengths to come up. Aviation is the only industry where a man with a box cutter could put a halt on billions in revenue. Bartok. Made millions up. Flight 716 going down. Loyalties can change, Harry. I screwed up. They're after me. Who's after you? We can't rule out any possibility at this time. Fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy ride down. So Departure airs Thursdays on Global. It's a Canadian-British co-production, a six-part series that follows the investigation into the shocking disappearance of a passenger plane over the Atlantic. Its primary stars are Canadian legend Christopher Plummer, as well as Archie Punjabi, and a whole bunch of that-guy actors that you've seen in movies and TV shows all over the place. If you have missed the first two episodes, you can catch up on demand or on the Global TV app. I've only watched one episode so far, but that first episode, it was twisty, it was turny, good character setups across the board. It was exciting, intriguing, just solid stuff. So I recommend Departure. And given that it's only six episodes, it's not a huge commitment. So uh, it's at least worth looking at that first episode, I think. Also this week... I realized The Amazing Race is back, and I forgot about it. It came back last week. I'm to the top of the mountain. Need to go on a vacation? Why not take a trip around the world? Hurry, hurry, hurry. Explore the sights. It's unreal. Meet new people. Enjoy friendly competition. Ah! Or maybe not so friendly. I just don't want this to be the end. We're going to do our best. We're almost there. Don't let your four walls keep you from the adventure of a lifetime. That sounds amazing. The world awaits on The Amazing Race. New season October 14th on CBS. Yeah, it started on the 14th, forgot about it completely, just happened to see a commercial on TV and thought, oh my God, i got to catch up on demand. Clev, that was really clever marketing, by the way, on CBS's part. The you know, advertising it like you are taking a vacation by watching the show. I mean, since we're all cooped up, 
and can't really go anywhere. I think that's actually genius marketing because that's what I've always liked about this show. The Amazing Race takes you around the world in a dozen or so episodes every season, shows you places and things that give you ideas maybe for potential future vacation spots, or it just shows you things that you would likely otherwise never get to see. So I love The Amazing Race, but it just... it. It's good to see it back after so long, but it it feels like it needs some kind of a major shakeup. I'm just not sure what, but it just it's the same thing every time. Also worth pointing out, it was shot in November of 2018. It's been in the can for almost two years, and I think that is just completely nuts. Meanwhile, new this weekend on Netflix, there's a show called Barbarians, and I remember seeing the trailer for that a couple of months ago and thought that looked pretty cool. The world continues to try to top Game of Thrones by proving that real-world kingdoms are just as violent. This is actually a German series that takes place against the backdrop of the Germans' battle against invading Romans in 9 BC. So that looks pretty cool, if you don't mind shows that come from another country and you have to read subtitles. Also, The Queen's Gambit. This is a show that might sound like an English monarchy drama, as McLean's describes here, but it's not. The Queen referred to as the one in the game of chess. It's a six-episode series based on a novel by Walter Tevis, who wrote The Hustler and The Man Who Fell to Earth, about an orphan girl who turns out to be a world-class chess prodigy. So that sounds kind of neat, if you're into that sort of thing. In a moment, I will tell you about Season 1 of The Crown. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. The first teaser trailer arrived in the last week or so for season four of a show that's been on my radar for years now, but I just haven't pushed myself to watch it. When I saw that season four, though, involved Princess Diana, and when I saw the buzz around this impending season, I thought it was finally time to look at the Netflix series The Crown. Here's a chunk of that season four teaser. Here is the stuff of which fairy tales are made. The prince and princess on their wedding day. So season four debuts on Sunday, November 15th. Thanks to Netflix, we could watch it now. They've given us, uh, graciously given us preview access for the last few months and we've enjoyed that. But I can't start on season four. I gotta start at the beginning. So let's start there, shall we? It would help if we could decide here and now on your name. My name? Yes, ma'am. Your regnal name. Uh, That is the name you will take as queen. Let's not overcomplicate matters unnecessarily. My name is Elizabeth. And long live Queen Elizabeth. Season one of The Crown begins when Elizabeth is not yet the queen. Her father is still alive and is still king, but it doesn't take long on the show before she takes over. This theme song, by the way, by Hans Zimmer, so that's kind of neat. Nor did it take long for me to fall in love with this show and wonder, why have I not been watching this? It's been on since 2016. Its first season won it three Emmys. John Lithgow won Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Winston Churchill. It also won awards for its production design and costumes. Its second season won it five Emmys, including lead actress for Claire Foy, who plays the Queen. Won a couple more Emmys in its third season. It's won a bunch of Golden Globes, including Best Drama in 2017. In other words, it's a show with some pretty solid pedigree. Now, this particular show... Uh, It does such a wonderful job on showing us just how unglamorous 
the monarchy can be for those directly involved. Great acting across the board, great writing. It is a lavish show. Those production design and costume awards are well-deserved. It's just plain and simple, really good. And it is a remarkable study of loneliness. What is uh, What really stuck out here is just what a lonely life the queen had to lead. She wasn't even supposed to be queen. Her father wasn't king. Then suddenly he was when his brother, King Edward VIII, abdicated, leading the way for King George VI, which means Elizabeth is now suddenly, as a kid, next in line for the crown. From there, uh, once she becomes the queen, she learns that she's the head of state, but she has no power. Every time she thinks she's allowed to make a decision about something, or every time she thinks she can impose her will even just a little bit, she realizes, nope. She is part of an institution that is steeped in rigid rules and tradition, and there is nothing she can do about any of it. And as a result, her loneliness is increased because her good intentions just kind of lead to pretty much everyone around her getting hurt. Her mom is unhappy. Her sister is unhappy. Her husband is unhappy. Prince Philip, by the way, played marvelously by Matt Smith. He is so smug and whiny. They're just, everyone is lonely on this show. The Queen Mother is lonely because they don't really need her anymore for anything official. Philip is lonely because he's stuck in the Queen's shadow. Her sister is lonely because she can't be the man she wants to be with because royalty sucks. The Queen is lonely for so many reasons. For example, she has no real education because as a kid they didn't teach her teach her normal school stuff. And so now she learns as an adult, she learns the hard way. She kind of has no idea what people are talking about half the time. She's also lonely because they keep secrets from her to protect her. And she's also lonely because her husband is a jerk. It really just paints a sad picture of the tradition of the monarchy. And it paints it as this tired old tradition. And yet, part of the show's brilliance is that it also makes you stop and wonder, is it tired? You know, the people... At the In the time of the show, they want change, but sometimes what the show also shows and proves is that tradition can provide stability. And there is still something kind of romantic about the whole thing, even when you see how the system is more or less designed to screw the members of the royal family. And indeed, you can wonder what... Why would I have any sympathy for people who live in palaces and mansions and have servants and don't have a care in the world? Well... It doesn't matter how much luxury you have. It seems luxury can't fix loneliness. And then there's Winston Churchill. And that character study is also fascinating, how he refuses to let go. Because if he lets go of his power, he has to admit he is getting old. Uh, and great performance from Lithgow. Also, side note, in this show, there is an artist who is commissioned to paint a portrait of Winston Churchill. And I thought, this Mr. Rogers-looking guy looks and sounds familiar. Well, he's played by Stephen Delane, who played Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones, but he was way more grizzled in Game of Thrones. He's <laughs> clean-cut and soft-spoken in The Crown, so that really took me off guard. Uh, but that was one of multiple instances where I knew, I just knew, I know this guy. Who is this person? Uh, one such familiar face is an actor named Pip Torrens. He uh, played the private secretary for the Queen. And again, when I saw him on The Crown, I thought, I know this guy. Where do I know him from? And it was to the point where I had to stop. I had to press pause and think about it. Because in the show, in The Crown, he has hair and a mustache. But on Preacher, 
that's where it finally hit me. Like he was on Preacher. That was the AMC show based on a comic book. He played a Nazi. He was bald. He had no facial hair, but he had the same stone cold look in his dead eyes and the same stone cold tone in his voice. So that didn't take me long to recognize him. And Jeff, you would recognize the Queen's sister, Margaret, probably immediately. She's played by Vanessa Kirby. She was in Mission Impossible Fallout and Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. So She's my favorite actress right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great show. Great cast. Of that. Great everything. Ten episodes a season. I'm now two episodes into season two, which continues with the same cast. And then it jumps ahead a few years in season three, where the queen is played by Olivia Coleman. And in season four, Gillian Anderson joins the cast as Margaret Thatcher. Princess Diana, by the way, is played by Elizabeth Debicki. You might know where to see her again. She's one of the one of those familiar faces who's been in a lot of things. She was in Christopher Tenet's or Christopher Nolan's Tenet this year. Uh, she's been in lots of movies, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Uh, but this, I think, will be her biggest role or her most famous role, no doubt. So I look forward to plowing through seasons two and three over the next couple of weeks. And I'll have a review of season four for you just in time for Sunday, November 15th. I have seen three great monarchies brought down through their failure to separate personal indulgences from duty. You must not allow yourself to make similar mistakes. The crown must win. Must always win. Jeff, you like that uh, sort of highfalutin British stuff? You like Downton Abbey? Are you going to watch The Crown ever? Uh, the Crown is definitely on my list of go-tos. I will get to it eventually. Um, November 15th for Season 4. I, I've, I can't plow through stuff as fast as you can, man. I don't think I'll make it in time. But it's funny you mentioned the loneliness because this week Prince William made a quick headline as he was he was walking down a street in London, which is rare enough, but then he was passing a KFC and he stops and he just like leers through the window at people eating their lunch because I guess he's got a thing for chicken, which is real, and he, but he's probably never been in a KFC before, so he was just want to see what was going on in there and like drool over some fried chicken oh man did he like just honest to god google william kfc and look at the sad picture of him forlornly looking through the window (laughs) Uh, hold on a second you can plow how long did it take you to watch like 400 episodes of cheers yeah, I watched that. I did it 11 seasons in nine weeks. But I was on a real mission there. I, I don't know. you got to really want it, and I don't know that I want it that bad for the crown. Maybe I should start, though. Maybe I should give it a shot this weekend, see what happens. That is a fair point you raise, though. If you want to binge something, you need to be on that mission. And uh, thankfully, I've been enjoying the crown enough to continue to just chug through it. I actually had to press pause in the crown and say, no, i got to watch that episode of Departure, and i got to watch the epi- an episode of The Amazing Race. you got to throw in some variety from time to time. Up next, speaking of variety... Jeff Braun watching another scary movie? Got to find out which one in a moment. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. Halloween is coming up, of course, and I don't watch a lot of horror movies, as longtime listeners will know, Brett, but I did watch one this week, 1996's Scream. Not scared, are you? Someone has taken their love of fear one step too far. Uh. 
How do we know you're not the killer? Solving this mystery. Everybody's a suspect! Is going to be murder. Who are you? The question is, where am I? We all go a little mad sometimes. Scream, the new thriller from West Craven, rated R. Wes Craven, of course, also made A Nightmare on Elm Street, so he knows a thing or two about horror movies. Now, I have seen Scream before, but not in many, many years. I did see the first one shortly after it came out, but on video, there was a lot of hype, and apparently there was enough hype to get me to break my no-horror movie rule, and I loved it, enough that I saw the next two Scream movies in theaters, the second one being the most notable screening, Brett, because my friends and I, we watched it in theater, and then we went out to an isolated cabin in the woods for the weekend in the dead of winter. It was the exact recipe for a horror movie, and even though i quite certain I had enough beers that I should have easily just fallen asleep. I was awake all night staring through this curtainless window at snow-covered tree branches that when the moonlight hit them just right, it looked like the ghost face mask staring back at me. So Scream 2 is an overall experience I'll never forget, although I can't remember much from the movie, specifically plot-wise. I found out this week I did remember a lot of the beats of the first movie pretty well, and it didn't really scare me, which I was glad to find that out. I mean, it helps when you know what the deal is with the killer and how it all plays out. Still creepy, though, and the movie's very suspenseful and clever and funny and entertaining in all the ways that made audiences love it back in the mid-'90s. I had it on my brain for a while, and mostly I just wanted to rewatch it so I could get it out of my brain. Also, my girlfriend's 15-year-old daughter wants to watch a horror movie with her mom and i suggested they watch scream and then i thought i should watch it myself to make sure i'm not going to get in trouble for recommending it to them and that's the good news is it is a great horror movie for teenagers i mean there are some bad words yes but nothing they don't hear in the hallway at school every day and it's not like it's pervasive like a tarantino movie or goodfellas or anything and there's brutal violence of course but it's really not gory it gets kind of messy at the end but it's mostly blood and no guts so it gets my seal of approval providing you're comfortable letting your teen watch a horror movie to begin with. The opening scene with Drew Barrymore is genius. To do that thing, is it an homage to Psycho? Because they do it in Psycho, where you cast the biggest name in the cast in that part and then kill her off in the first scene. Not only did audiences not see it coming, it also leaves you unsettled the rest of the movie because Wes Graven is now established at anyone can die and i don't want to spoil the ending in case there are people out there who haven't seen it yet but the ending was a pretty original twist i thought as well and unlike a lot of horror movies at least back then scream was very you know self-aware of it and derived a lot of comedy from the different horror tropes that it was satirizing i know that's why i enjoyed it as much as i did originally because the mission isn't just to scare you and gross you out it was also to make you laugh and maybe even think about some things so i also saw bits of scream 2 throughout this week it was on tv but my girlfriend was with me at the time and because she's never seen scream one and i want her to see it with her daughter i said we can't watch scream two because it'll tip you off as to who survived the first movie and that's no fun to for the first time watching it so we watched a cooking show instead but i kept flipping back to scream two during commercials just to see if i remembered any of it and mostly i didn't so i'll have to give that a go sometime soon i suppose as well they're all four of those movies are on uh prime video right now like um so it's my vote for favorite horror series i guess I, I think the third one wasn't very good i've actually not seen the fourth one there's also a series on netflix and they're making a fifth movie right now so there's still more screaming to come yeah the, the first movie easily is the best one scream 2 was pretty good but it kind of 
followed the same formula. They just amped it up a little bit. And that was part of yeah. the satire of the sequel because Scream is kind of right. poking fun at the horror genre. And then Scream 2 yeah. poked fun at sequels. Um, the third one just felt a little tired. The fourth one was kind of fresh, but uh, it certainly did, doesn't stand up, I think, as a classic. Nothing will beat that first Scream. It's one of the smartest horror films I think there's ever been. I love it. And if you want to see it on the big screen, by the way, it's actually in theaters again this weekend. Because last week, a handful of Halloween movies popped up in theaters, one of them being Halloween, Beetlejuice, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Hocus Pocus, and now this week you've got Scream, Hotel Transylvania, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Addams Family, Monster House, Annabelle, Annabelle Creation, The Conjuring, Goosebumps, Monsters, Inc., and The Lost Boys. So definitely want to check that out. And hey, we just got to mention a couple of quick things because Jeff has found some notable entries coming this week to home video. Big box set from the town of Bedrock. The complete series of the Flintstones, all six seasons plus two movies on Blu-ray. That comes out on Tuesday. And, Brett, you know how you always, at any given moment in your life, there's a show that you really love. I have never loved a show more than I loved the Flintstones when I was a little kid. I lived and breathed and died by the Flintstones. It was just my absolute favorite hands down. So i got to try and convince somebody to get me the Flintstones on Blu-ray for Christmas because it costs like... I think like a hundred bucks for the six seasons. And by the way, one of those two movies is from 2015, and the name of it is The Flintstones and WWE Stone Age Smackdown. And your boy John Cena's in it, and a couple other wrestlers: The Undertaker, Rey Mysterio. Is that a wrestler? It's got to be. Yes. Vince McMahon's in it. So there you go. That might be something for you. I'll lend that to you if I get the box set. So. Okay. <laughs> and the other one is uh, a move. Is the Best Picture winner from the Oscars last year, Parasite, already out. On Blu-ray, but this is the Criterion Collection version. There's two versions of the movie in there: the regular version and a black and white version, plus the all beautiful packaging that the Criterion always puts out, and all the bonuses and extras, and that'd be a good package too. That's all the time we've got. We'll have that review of Borat 2 next week. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. And remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.